Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. At the end of the book of Job, it's chapter 42, the last chapter. It's after God has revealed himself to Job in the ways described in the video, and we come to verse 1. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, Who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, Listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Some people develop such a well-known reputation, they no longer have any use for a last name. Their first name alone triggers the epitome of a set of skills and values. So we have Oprah. Adele, LeBron, Colleen, they all fit together. And the Old Testament character Job is one who needs no last name. Most people, religious or not, identify Job with suffering, with tough times, with loss, and with perseverance through all these things. Job's story, at a minimum, pierces any fairy tale illusions we might have that following God somehow guarantees a life of comfort, luxury, or privilege. Job was living large. He had a thriving family, a wealthy empire, and he had the gift of physical health, but then disaster struck. And he lost his wealth, and he lost his ten children, and he lost his health, and all of these losses lowered his prestige in the eyes of his friends. But through all of his loss, Job refused to curse at God or to turn away from him. And as Manuel said earlier, we are in the midst of a 50-day season of Eastertide where we celebrate the new world that began when Jesus returned from the grave. And we have been talking during these weeks about the necessity of celebration. Celebration is not an option, especially in a difficult and painful world. And today we're considering the somewhat strange idea of celebrating through the various losses we experience in life. And using Job's story, I'd like to frame this around the idea of when loss happens. And to begin, when loss happens, a space opens for Jesus to bring authentic and deep transformation. We might call it the gift of loss. Now, it doesn't feel like a gift in the moment, as we are all aware. It doesn't feel like a gift even after the fact. Loss hurts. It brings grief. And loss usually raises complex questions about life and about God. Loss is never easy. And we never want to diminish the agony of loss with sloganizing or with spiritualizing, the heartbreaks of this life are a constant reminder that this world is not the way it is supposed to be. 
Now, obviously, we experience loss in many ways, and perhaps a loss you've experienced is in your mind right now. A loved one's death is the most obvious and often the most difficult loss for us to process and sort out in light of God and in light of uh, who he is. But today I want to focus on the many other losses we experience in this life because I think it's in these many other losses that might seem on the surface to be smaller losses where many of us are living these days, such as the loss of influence or the loss of control. We sometimes experience the loss of identity as the world keeps hustling on without our input and without our influence as if it never really needed us. And there's a loss in this. We experience the loss, perhaps, of a hope or of a dream. We thought we would do this or accomplish that, and we're gradually coming to realize maybe not. We experience the loss of a hope or a dream for someone else, for our children, perhaps, and we're gradually coming to realize maybe not. We experience the loss of a relationship, maybe through divorce, maybe through a division in a family or with a friend, or maybe because there's just this recognition that there's irreparable damage, and so the relationship will never be what God intended it to be. And of course, we experience the loss of health in various ways. So just before we dive deeper, where are you experiencing a loss these days? Where do you feel the magnitude of loss in your life? It's in these times that a space opens for Jesus to cultivate something new, something real and transformational in our inner being. So loss can be a transforming gift because it has a unique way of stripping away the superfluous of life, that is, the accumulated clutter in the soul. Loss opens a space that we will eventually fill with something. So when we experience loss on whatever scale, we are standing on the brink of something new, the potential of something new. We're standing on the brink, if you will, of resurrection, of something new being formed by God's work within us. See, it's in those empty spaces where something is now gone, or in a way, something is dead, that Jesus can actually exert his resurrection power and bring forth something new if we allow him to do it. Now, this usually doesn't happen fast. Usually, loss begins with a sense of chaos. And we've all probably experienced that. It's what's so attractive about the video we just watched and the story of Job. In Job's recounting of his experience, he says this great thing in verse 3. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. And it's pretty easy to relate to this. He's talking about the agonizing questions and accusations toward God that gushed out of him in the early days of his suffering. When his life unraveled, as we often do, Job spoke with great certainty of how God had abandoned him, how his life was meaningless. He spoke with great certainty of how it would have been better for him to not ever have been born. 
as it happens, he got stuck in a whirlpool of misery. And he just kept spinning round and round as he reflected on the turmoil of his life. And he asked the familiar questions and he faced the familiar conundrums that we face when life starts to spin out of control. He says, I spoke of things I did not understand. I force-fit explanations into what happened. I found someone to blame for what happened. I drew firm conclusions about God's opinion of me in light of what happened. I questioned God's character. I spoke as though I knew for sure, even though I didn't really know much at all. Now, we have the benefit of sort of a Monday morning quarterbacking on Job's situation. We have the benefit of hindsight into his story to see what he wasn't able to see in real time. His loss opened up a space God wanted to fill with his own presence and with his own power. Job was on the brink of something new. God wanted to deepen his character through the loss. He wanted to resurrect something new in Job. God wanted to bring Job to a whole new experiential knowledge of his presence and of his goodness. God wanted to transform Job through the difficulty. And in the end, in Job 42, in the verses that I read, Job gets it. He sees and he understands life and God and himself through the lenses of God's transcendent power and presence. God formed him through his losses and deepened him through his sufferings. And this is the brink we are on in seasons of loss, however big or great or small they may be. How will we emerge from the loss? Bitter or better? Graceful or cynical? Surrendered or stubborn? See, there is a reason for celebration even when loss happens because loss opens up space in our interior. And we are on the brink of resurrection life. And we will fill the space with something. We will respond to the loss in some way, perhaps by medicating the pain of the loss with booze or with ambition or with pleasure of some kind. Or we will respond to the loss by shutting down and retreating. Or we'll respond to the loss by becoming cynical or by distracting ourselves with more things to do. But it is a guarantee we will find something to occupy the space the loss creates. And we need to know and we need to remember Jesus wants to bring real and deep transformation through the losses we experience. He's with us in those times. And we are on the brink. He wants to transform, perhaps, our thinking, renew our understanding of who he is and what he's doing in our lives. He wants to resurrect something new in us out of the ashes of the loss. So it is really important for us to sit in the loss for a while. This is against everything we want to instinctively do. But it's really important to sit in the loss for a while and not rush our way through it. 
It is important to pay attention to what is stirring within us during the loss, the many questions that are arising. The why me stuff is worth paying attention to. And it is especially important to let other people speak truth into the chaos and confusion we are experiencing. So we sit in the emptiness and we resist the temptation to numb the pain because whether we can see it or not, God is on the move. Transformation is up around the bend. We are on the brink if we will wait and if we want what God offers. Secondly, when loss happens, we remember yet again, we are not the center of the universe. Throughout the book, there's this contrasting, almost contradictory image of Job that emerges. And it's something like this. We've been talking about hands raised and our hands in this process of celebration. So here's this image that sort of emerges in this story of Job. His hands are raised toward God. One hand is open in a posture of worship and receptivity, but the other hand is a closed fist in a posture of lament and in a posture of anger. His teeth are clenched, but his head is turned upward, upward as if he's looking for God. Stress has carved and cut deep grooves in his face. There's a single tear in one eye, but the other eye is lit with hope and with expectation. It is a rather authentic image, consistent with the way real people often respond to the troubles and losses of this life. Loss brings confusing questions and outbursts of visceral emotions directed at God. It brings raw lament. We get angry with God. We shake our fists at Him, maybe both of them. And this is all part of the deepening process. And God is not rattled a bit by our unfiltered reactions to life's losses. In fact, I don't think we will discover His transforming work if we try to bypass the raw lament. But hovering just beneath the surface of Job's story, perhaps the main thing God wanted Job to realize was the most important fact of life in this entire universe. God is God, and we are not. So I don't like sharing these little anecdotes I'm about to share. I I don't know why. I get stuck internally and think, these are so silly. I don't like them. So I looked it up on Snopes because I don't believe half of them. And this is in the category of undetermined, which means it may be true. It may not be true. And if you've been in church for more than two weeks, you've probably heard this somewhere. But bear with me. Just before takeoff, supposedly, on an airplane flight years ago, a flight attendant reminded Muhammad Ali to fasten his seatbelt. Superman don't need no seatbelt replied Ali, and the flight attendant shot back, Superman don't need no airplane either. (laughs) This idea of who is God, not us. And in our scripture reading, Job is expressing the things God has taught him and the realizations he has discovered through his valley of suffering. He says in verse 6, very interesting, Therefore I despise myself, 
and repent in dust and ashes. This is sort of the recognition after all of this realization, this beautiful outburst by a man whose eyes have been opened to the greater reality of God as king. Scholars of the Hebrew language do not interpret Job's repentance here in verse 6 as a repentance of sin. He wasn't wrong, in other words, to pour out his unedited heart to God. Scholars interpret the use of repentance here in Job 42.6 to mean Job recanted his accusations about God. He retracted, in other words, his doubt about God's qualifications to run the universe. Job realized, in other words, that he, Job, is not God. So he does not understand the mysteries of the universe, including the sufferings of humankind. There are things that happen in this life and in this world that he, Job, cannot comprehend because they are beyond him. Because he is not God. So God's purposes transcend our ability to comprehend. He is the Almighty. He is the Eternal. We worship him as the King. And we are his creations. We are his followers. So it makes some sense that his purposes do not always align with ours And his purposes do not always make sense to us because they are beyond us. Included, perhaps somehow hidden, in the inexhaustible and incomprehensible grace of God's infinite wisdom. He is God and we are not. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And as we sang earlier... Blessed be the name of the Lord. So we don't understand the losses. Our questions will not often be answered. Our laments will not often be quieted. Life hurts. God is good. God is God. And we are not. Now what we can say is that the loss of, for example, power. Or the loss of influence or the loss of identity, or the loss of relationship, or the loss of physical ability. Whatever the losses may be, we can say, are ultimately connected to God's grand and transcendent purpose of preparing us to be with him forever. So the transforming work God does through loss is that of stripping us of the illusion that we are God or that we are in control, or that we are in any way, shape, or form the center of the universe. Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This verse is always cited when this topic is discussed. But what does it actually mean for God to work for the good of those who love them. There's a lot of speculating we can do, but it seems to me he works for our good by stripping us of any lingering illusion that we are God or that we are in control 
or that we are the center of it all. His good work in us through loss is to bring us back to the crucial realization that he is God and we are not. Third and last, when loss happens, knowing about starts inching toward experience with. Job 42, verses 5 and 6, is a powerful statement from a man who had a real encounter with the living God. And I've massaged this a bit in light of our conversation about what scholars think repentance mean. But he says this, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and recant, because you are God and I am not. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. My head has known about you, but now I've experienced you. I've encountered you. I've seen who you are. I've witnessed your power. I've actually experienced your love. Verse 2, Job says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. I want you to think about what he's saying. I know that you can do all things, God. That no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The Hebrew word know in this verse and throughout the Old Testament is the word yada, Y-A-D-A, as in yada, 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 as in blah, 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 as in, yeah, I know, I know, I know, as in, I've heard it all before, so spare yourself the energy, because I'm not really listening anyway. So how do we say this verse? I know God can do all things. I've read about it somewhere. People tell me that. This knucklehead sits in front of us every week and tries to convince us of that. I know God can do all things. Is that how we say it? Or, I know God can do all things. Because I've seen him do amazing things in me and in my life. And I've seen him do amazing things in the community of his people. I've seen marriages healed, families restored. I've seen the lonely comforted. I've seen the hurting find hope. And so I know God can do all things. Job is saying, now I know. I know intimately. I know personally. I know experientially that you, God, can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I now know this is the ultimate reality in which every detail of my life is unfolding. Some years ago, Julie and I were on a hike with some friends, and we were walking along a trail somewhere up off of Highway 50, and suddenly there was this loud crashing sound down the slope to right to the left of the trail we were walking on, and I looked over the edge of this Slope, and I saw a bear galloping through the brush. It was sprinting away from us. Apparently, we had startled him or awoken him, and he was hightailing it out of there. Now, I had known of bears before. Black bears, brown bears, grizzly bears, Chicago bears. 
I'd known of bears before. But that day, I saw a bear with my own eyes. I saw its power. I heard the sound of a real bear tearing through the woods. I saw its resolve. And I must say, experiencing a bear was slightly different than knowing about bears. Job knew about God before, but through his loss, he experienced God. You see the difference. Knowing about God versus an experience with God. John 17.3 is a very important verse in who we are at Oak Hills. Jesus says this in John 17.3. Now this is eternal life. And I want you to stop right there. Don't look at that. Karen, delete that for a moment. Now this is eternal life. And what I'd like you to do is think for a moment about how you would write the rest of that verse. And remember, you're going to write the rest of that verse and people throughout history are going to read your words and they're going to rely on what you say eternal life is. What would you write? How would you define and describe eternal life? Well, let's see how Jesus does it. John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, that they yada you, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, that they would know you, that they would experience you, right now, today, in the valley of loss, that they would live in the reality of your reality. See, one of the indicators that we know God in this way is we cling to hope. And I know some of you are about to let go of it. I know some of you can see it floating away from you, like Wilson in the Tom Hanks film. It's just floating away, and you're letting it go. One of the indicators we know God this way is we cling to hope. Hope that things can change. Hope that we can change. Hope that the future can be different. Hope that the valley of loss is not the final word or the end of the story. Hope that God is indeed at work right now in our valley of loss, bringing us deeper into the reality of His kingdom. And... Hope that even if our circumstances do not change, we can find peace that passes all understanding. And we can dwell in His peace right now, knowing, really intimately knowing that all is well. And one day, all will be ultimately and completely and perfectly well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we cannot scramble to this reality on our own. We do not have the power or the means to get there in our own strength. 
But we declare today that we believe you are resurrected and that you want to resurrect us into this hope, into this belief, into this experiential knowledge of your presence and power with us right now, today, in the valley of our loss. So resurrect hope because we believe and we know that you are with us and you possess the power. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.